I just returned Tuesday from a whirlwind trip to Nepal, where I met my younger daughter and her husband on their spring break from teaching, uh, their teaching jobs in Bangladesh. I say whirlwind uh, because if you travel to Nepal and back in a week, uh, nearly half of your time is spent traveling. But also because my heart and mind are still swirling with what I experienced. I know some of you have been to Nepal. Phil and Joe Gross spent nearly a year there. For those of you who have not, it's about as far away from here as you can get, and I don't just mean in miles. Nepal is a third world country, a developing nation, whatever the politically co correct term is these days, for a place where you can't drink the water and you can't trust the food, where basics like plumbing and electricity can't be assumed. I saw amazing things, both beautiful and alarming. The sunrise over the Himalayas, ancient temples and shrines, two World Heritage Sites, an eight-year-old girl who is a living goddess, two people carrying a goat on a motorcycle, <laughs> the river running through Kathmandu choked with garbage, dust and air pollution so bad that many people wear masks, and the things you can't necessarily see but hear about, low literacy rate, and appalling statistics about human trafficking. As I mentioned to a physician in our congregation last week, it's times like this when I wish I were a doctor, because then I could offer something real, something more helpful than my tourist dollars. In the face of Nepal's poverty and social chaos, I feel pretty helpless. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died, say the dead man's sisters, Mary and Martha, to Jesus. Who has not felt a similar pang during times of grief or tragedy or when overwhelmed by monumental problems? God, where are you? God, couldn't you have done something to prevent this? God, why did this happen? God, I feel so helpless. This morning's story is highly symbolic, full of meaning and full of questions. Jesus says all sorts of things that not even the people right there with him understand, not to mention those of us trying to figure it out 2,000 years later and a half a world away. Why did Jesus lollygag? Why is he so extremely disturbed? The Greek word for greatly disturbed is a very strong verb here. When he could have arrived in time to heal Lazarus. For whom does he weep? For Lazarus? For humanity? Or for himself? Because this episode turns out to be the match that lights the fuse of the plot to arrest and kill Jesus. The miracle itself is the most spectacular moment in the story, but the miracle dramatizes the central point, revealed in the conversation when Martha questions Jesus about his delayed arrival, and Jesus assures her, in turn, that her brother will rise again. Martha answers with an assertion about 
the resurrection on the last day, the belief that at the end of time all the dead will rise from the grave. Her answer is, by all accounts, the absolutely right, correct religious response. And yet Jesus pushes her beyond this, or more accurately, he pulls her back from the distant future into the immediate and concrete present. I am the resurrection, Jesus says, and the life. The meaning and consequences of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection have immediate implications. And then Jesus shows us this symbolically with the raising of Lazarus. Not after Easter, not after his own death and resurrection, or at the end of time, but right then and there. So the promises of God are not only about life eternal with God after we die or something that kicks in at the end of time. Rather, the gospel should make a real, concrete difference now. Make things possible now. Open up opportunities and options now. Transform relationships now. The promises of God are present tense, not just future. The promises of God are present tense, not just future. In the dramatic scene by the tomb, Jesus asks the mourners who surround the sisters to roll away the stone, and then he calls Lazarus by name. Lazarus hears and emerges from the tomb, but in order for him to be truly free from death, the bystanders need to unbind him from his burial cloths. They help Lazarus into the new life that Jesus offers. So both in rolling away the stone and in this unbinding, we see that Jesus' power over death, his power to give us life, is passed along to the community. The community, in other words, is to participate in God's action, to join in completing God's redemptive acts. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. The word literally means the called out ones. Like Lazarus, we, the church, are called out. We are called out from that which is death-dealing to that which is life-giving. As God's called out ones, we are to call out others and to do the dirty work of removing the wrappings that bind people to a living death, that hold them back from the life of love and belonging and connection that God wants for all of God's people. Today we celebrate that a lovely group of folks have chosen to become members of our ecclesia, our church. You don't have to be a church member to participate in our ministries. Our homeless shelter, which winds up for the season in the next week or so, is staffed by kids from the 4-H club and big-hearted neighbors in San Anselmo and folks from the preschool. Our work in climate change and social justice is open to anyone, and we are thrilled. We are thrilled to welcome participation 
regardless of anyone's belief or lack of belief. But today we celebrate making a commitment to being ecclesia, the called out ones. We celebrate that intentional step of saying we are people who strive to dream God's dreams and live into God's plans. Lazarus will die again. But the community empowered to unbind and set loose will endure. Indeed, it has endured, persisting through the centuries in works of courage and mercy right down to this congregation. Even if we can't do everything, we can do something, and we do, because we work together and we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. I can't solve Nepal's problems, or global warming, or any of the world's problems alone. I can't solve the problems of human loneliness and grief and disease alone. But together, in little ways and big, we can respond to God's invitation to make a difference in this world right here, right now, with you, with each other, I am not helpless. I have hope. Yesterday, nine folks from our congregation, including youth, went to a Stop Hunger Now packaging event. Diana referred to it with the kids. The event was at the Presbyterian Church in Chinatown. You can see photos of it if you go onto our Facebook page. The assembly line process combines rice and dehydrated dehydrated vegetables and flavoring mixed with vitamins and minerals into small meal packages. These meal packages are shipped around the world to support school feeding programs and crisis relief. If you hold one little packet of food in your hand, it doesn't seem like much. But since 2005, Stop Hunger Now has, has helped more than 250,000 ordinary folks put together 138,650,437 meals, which have been distributed to 65 countries. This effort is a terrific metaphor for the church, for us. God is beckoning us to claim Christ's resurrection power now, by participating in and completing the fantastic work that God is doing all over the place. Through all we, we do and through our relationships, we, the ecclesia, the called out ones, are called to unbind, set free, release and renew, to overcome helplessness with hope. One food package at a time. One meal served to a homeless guest at a time. One olive tree planted at a time. One home rebuilt in the Gulf Coast at a time. One visit to a hospital at a time. One graciously hosted memorial service reception at a time. One child of God welcomed, loved, and included at a time. Thanks be to God for this church. May God continue to help us to claim our faith 
as a present tense invitation to live our promised salvation now. Amen.